Good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Hope you're enjoying the Christmas season. All your Christmas shopping, I know, is probably done. Which is weird because none of you asked me what I wanted. So uh, I guess we're just going to see what you get me. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> you're, like, just, just, you're like, I don't know. This is awkward now. Okay. I need to say something um, as kind of a warning. Okay. There, there are times... You know, the, the, the message is completed, so it's all written out um, in the middle of the week. And, and so we use that as planning. We use that as to help us, you know, pick songs, arrange the service. Everybody kind of gets on the same page. So whoever's preaching, we try to get that uh, several days in advance before uh, today. And there are times when you write the message and then you think about it a little bit and you think, I wish I could take that out. So my introduction is one of those, I was like, I really wish I could have uh, taken this out. But it's already there, it's in print, so we're just going to roll into the mess uh, together. So let me just say this right up front as a warning. I am not trying to destroy your view of Santa Claus. Okay, so before I get any of the nasty emails or phone calls or you have your kids come to my house and knock on the door and yell at me, just know, okay, I am not, I promise you, I am not trying to hurt your view of Santa Claus. I am, you're welcome. <laughs> you're like, thank you. I can still come to this church now. I appreciate that. Here's what I want to do, though. I, I want to show you that I think it's interesting sometimes how our view of God is too similar to our view of Santa Claus. And here's what I mean by that comparison. I know you're already getting riled up. You're like, no, I'm going to throw a candy cane at you, Pastor Paul. Please don't do that. Okay, one, you couldn't hit me. Because if I turn this way, it's like a board. There's like no way you can get me. You have to have really good aim. Um, well, here's what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to show you is that if we, if we put Santa Claus in the God slot, like it's not going to work. The job description's too big for that guy. And he's a big guy. So like the point being is this. If we view God like we view Santa Claus, we're in trouble. We're going to be disappointed. So that's what I mean by this comparison. So just roll with me here a little bit. Like, for example, we view these figures as being far off. Right? Santa Claus lives in the North Pole. God is in heaven. So there's this distance we place between us and them. When we communicate, too, there's a sense in which we really want these figures to give us what we want. To get everything on our wish list. And sometimes our prayers kind of sound like that. God, give me what I want. When we think about Santa Claus, we think that he does a lot of his work behind the scenes, right? He does most of his work when we're sleeping on Christmas Eve. Well, we talk of God in a way of God is subtle, right? Or God works in mysterious ways. See? See what I'm talking about? Like, what does that mean? God's like hiding behind a rock. You're not going to see me. He just like runs up, tickles you with a feather. You're like, hey, what was that? Right? But we kind of have that idea that God is subtle. He's behind the scenes. He's far away. He's here to give me what I want. You see how dangerous it can be when we start to insert Santa ideas onto God? Another example, a little deeper, maybe a little more rough to consider is the moral response that these figures have toward humanity. I'll give you an example. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. How does he get back to those on the naughty list? 
with lumps of coal. Okay, doesn't that feel a little disappointing? Especially when you think of the cruelty of humanity and some of the real moral atrocities that have, have, have occurred. Don't we need a little more than some coal to really right the scales of justice? We could have a same view of God. God, you're far off, and you don't really stop evil. Now, you don't stop these moral atrocities from happening. So many people are getting hurt. Why are you not stepping in? Right? We can have those thoughts of God. Uh, on the more positive side, what about the reward? Santa, he gives gifts, gives rewards, but those toys break before we get to next Christmas, which is why we ask for new toys again. So it's like a little disappointing there. Same thing can be said of God. When we are rewarded for our obedience, sometimes that only brings about a season of blessing. And so we're disappointed that that blessing doesn't last, but it slips into suffering, seems like so quickly. And again, what I'm trying to do is not insult your view of Santa Claus, but to show you that if we start to take some of those concepts and we put them on God, we're going to be very frustrated with this God who's far away and is not fixing things. This distant God who's not handling the moral atrocities in this world and rewarding the good behavior in this world. A far off God who's not fixing things. Now we're walking through this Christmas series and walking through Mary's Christmas. That means Mary's perspective on Christmas. And this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to look at her song. It's her reaction to uh, the good news that God is going to bring about the Messiah through her. She's going to be the mother of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And she's going to sing this song of praise to God. And we're going to take our time and slowly walk through this song. But in this song, we're going to see a very high view of God. She does not view God like Santa Claus. She does not view God as far off and unable to fix anything. She has a much more robust view of God. And here's the odd thing, is when we look at her view, and we'll see this in Luke chapter 1, it's going to seem a little strange to us, because she would describe her posture toward God as one of fear. That she fears God. Now that sounds odd to us. As modern readers of the scriptures, modern hearers, we often would think, wait, fear? That doesn't seem appropriate to our relationship to God. Fear God? Because we think of the idea of fear as like being scared or terrified. We think of, you know, I'm afraid of spiders. I'm afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of nutria. Right, those devastatingly ugly creatures who are there just to swallow your soul at night. That's what nutria are. If you don't know that, I'm here to warn you about the devastating consequences of having these rodents in your state. Um, our state, right? I'm an Oregonian, but that's one part of Oregon I do not want to claim ever as the nutria. But see, we have that idea of what we fear, we flee from. We run away. We see a nutria, we break an ankle, we go. Right? And if the kid gets left behind, the kid gets left behind, man. Survival of the fittest. Like, sorry. No. Right? But we run from the things that we're afraid of. But that's not what Mary's going to express. Mary's going to express a fear that doesn't run from God, but actually runs to God. A fear that doesn't flee, but rather one that follows. So here's what we're going to see. This is the big idea for this morning. I think if we want to summarize Mary's view and what we get from her song, it's this. If you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write 
this down. The big idea is this. We should fear God, but not be afraid of God. Now, if you're an English teacher, I know it's wrong. Okay, get over it. Okay, it's Sunday. You're not doing work right now. On Monday, you can tell me I'm incorrect. But this is the idea I think we're going to get from Mary. That she fears God, but she's not scared. She's not terrified. She's not running. Let me show you this. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 46. This is the beginning of her song. I'm going to read the whole song and because I want us to get kind of the rhythm of the whole thing. So we're going to go through the whole song, but then we're only going to really kind of dive into the second half of her song. And what we're going to see is a very high view of God. So let me show you this in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. It said, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for all those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good food and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, as we look at this song and we walk through what Mary is doing in reaction to God's announcement of using her to bring about the birth of the Messiah, and we look at this song, we see there are many Old Testament connections, right? We shouldn't view Mary as kind of completely novel in the ideas that she's bringing. She is in a tradition, a stream of thought to that point. And understanding those Old Testament connections will help us understand just how lofty of a view of God she has. Because this idea of fear, this isn't new, for, new from her. She's not the author of this idea. This is an ancient idea that came from the Old Testament to fear God. We, th- we see it all throughout Scripture. And I want to show you the kind, of, the kind of elements that make up this idea of fear. And the first word I want to look at in Mary's song is this. So go to Verse 49, it says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. There are three phrases there that we need to unpack. The idea of God being mighty, God doing great things, and showing strength with his arm. These are loaded with Old Testament meaning. This idea of God's might, this idea of God's strength, it's not just talking about like God's capacity, like how much he can curl. That's not what it's talking about. It is talking about how God rules over all of nature and all the nations. 
that no one can overpower him. No one can submit him. No one can gather a force large enough to overtake him. He is mighty. He is strong. He is all-powerful, and his reign is expansive and extensive. Every space he is sovereign over, and in every way he can do whatever he pleases. That's what she means when she's talking about, my God is mighty. He does great things, and he does this with his strong arm. Those phrases are often used by the Old Testament writers to describe God's deliverance of his people, specifically when they were delivered from Egyptian oppression when they were uh, uh, slaves in Egypt. It talks about how God did a mighty work on behalf of Israel. With his strong arm, he led them out. And when the Bible describes God's people being preserved, God overthrowing enemies that were against them, it uses the same exact language. This language of might is a language of warfare. That's what this language means. And I want to show you this. So I want to go through several Old Testament passages and the reason I want to do this is because in order to understand what she's saying, we got to see where it comes from. We got to see that she is not isolated in what she is saying, but these concepts are coming from hundreds, over thousands, a thousand years of history coming into what she is saying. These concepts are loaded with Old Testament significance. So let's just take that one might, and I want you to see the language of warfare. That is used. So go to Psalms 89. Psalm 89. It's in the middle of your Bible. This is going to be uh, what my old pastor used to call a finger-licking good sermon. Because you have to lick your finger to th flip through all the pages. If you're scrolling, don't lick your finger. That's just weird. It's going to make a really weird thing on your home screen. Okay? So don't be like, look, don't do that. Okay? Now, I want to say this too. This is important. As we walk through these Old Testament passages... These are, these are heavy passages, okay? These, these are not the PG version of the Bible, okay? They're going to be intense. And, and, and I, I want to warn you, right? It would be easy to just to hide these passages from you, like to never show you these ones, to keep them in the back, right? But that wouldn't be honest. You know, in, in our house, in our family, we say, uh, we have a phrase, we say, God speaks before we speak. Now, what do we mean by that? Now, what we mean is we are not hoping that this book will catch up to this, but that this will catch up to this book. We submit ourselves to God's truth in this book, and we know that there are times we're going to read this book and it's going to stretch us. And the adjustment doesn't need to be him. It needs to be us. And that's the concept we're saying. So we're going to get to some passages here that are probably going to make you feel a little unsettled and a little uncomfortable. That's okay. That's okay. Because you're not the author of this book. And I'm not the author of this book. So when you read this book, we're going to be surprised how this thing moves us to consider new things in a new way. So I just want to warn you, these passages, they're heavy. They're heavy. But, they, but we have to be honest with God's word. And we have to see what Mary is trying to communicate. So go to Psalms 89. Psalm 89. We're going to start with verse 5. And we're looking at the might of God and see how God is talked about when it comes to his display of his power. Verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders, O God, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? 
Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be, what, feared. We're, we, we, we get an indication here that we are in the stra- same line of thinking that Mary is thinking. A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, for your faithfulness all around you. Your rule, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, rise, you shall still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scatter your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours and the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. What's being described there? God's might is not just in connection to his dominion over nature. When it talks about the raging of the sea and God is able to still that. We have to realize that in the ancient world, they were victims of natural disasters in a larger way than we are. Right, we have so many warnings and signals, right? Your Apple Watch is going to be like, hey, there's an earthquake. And you're like, okay. Right? I don't know if they're that advanced yet. But there's, we get warnings, right, of these disasters that are come upon us. We can prepare ourselves. Our structures are much stronger. But in the ancient world, they didn't know this stuff was coming. And when hit, it would be devastating. And this psalmist is writing, God is not taken aback by these things. These things don't catch him by surprise. In fact, he's the one who can rein these things in. And when the sea rages, he can tame it. He rules over nature. But the might and the power of God, there's more to it than just God ruling nature. He rules what? The nations. It describes him vanquishing his foe taking out those who are his enemies. What the psalmist is saying is there is no one that can overtake him. There is no one he can be compared to. He is all powerful. There's no limits to what he can do. He is mighty and he is strong. Now Mary also uses another phrase. She says that God is holy. Holy. What does that mean? Go again back to Luke chapter 1. Just to show you, this is a phrase she uses as well. She speaks of the might of God, his, him doing great things. And she also speaks of his mighty works done by his mighty hand. But she also speaks of him as being holy. Look at verse, I'll get it, 49. For he is mighty, he has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What does that mean? What does that concept mean? This helps us because now we can see what does the might of God do. If God is all-powerful and no one can overtake him, no one can submit him, no one can subdue him, no one can stop him. Well, what does he do with all this power? What does he do with all this might? Holiness tells us where God directs his power. Now, here's what we often think of. When we think of the holiness of God, we think of it just describing God's impeccable moral character. Now, that is true. It's true that when we speak of God's holiness, we're talking about him, who he is, and the lack of sin that is in him. He is a morally perfect being. 
But we have to go farther than that because when the scriptures speak about holiness, they don't speak of holiness as like this um, static thing. It is dynamic. It, it, the, the best way to think, about it, uh, think of it is almost like, like gravity. Like every object has gravitational force due to its mass. So when a, a, an object has more mass, it has a greater attraction of bringing other objects to itself. I know it's not a physics class. I know that. My point is this. It's a concept that we can understand that there's a quality about an object that affects the other objects around them. And this is the idea of God's holiness. He has like a moral mass to him that is so significant and so heavy that it like bends reality towards him, like gravity, like an attraction. His holiness is dynamic. His moral purity is pressing out into every part of the universe. So he is not a God who's far away and unable to fix things, but his holiness is dynamic. He has a desire to bring justice to every part of creation. Let me show you this, okay? Because I want you to think of the holiness of God as creating like this, this wake of justice. It just goes out to all corners. Like we cannot confine or, or constrain or contain the holiness of God. It's not like we can like ziplock it, put it in a bag, and put it in a shelf. Like, okay, it's holiness over there. That's not the concept of holiness. Holiness is a quality of God that affects everything around him. And in his wake, his holiness is harmful and helpful. Let me show you this in the language of the prophets. So I want you to go to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 46. Now I cheated, right? I have these little ribbons that kind of allow me to flip right through the book. I know you're like, wow, he got to Isaiah really quick. The problem is I only have two ribbons. So if we ever get any more than those passages, I got to flip through them too. And if you beat me to the passage, a deacon will come with a gold star and put it on your Bible. You get special parking for the next week. Okay, so this is Isaiah chapter 47. Now, again, I want to warn you, it's some heavy stuff here. Again, not the PG version of the scriptures. And the two passages I've chosen to kind of show you the dynamic nature of God's holiness they're kind of talking about really the same event. They're talking about God freeing his people from Babylonian captivity. So if you're not familiar with the, kind of the history of Israel, let me do it really, really fast. So there was this guy named Abraham, and Abraham was given a promise. I'm going to bless you and bless the world through you. Through your offspring, Messiah will come. So this is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus, Abraham. Abraham's line turned into the people of Israel. The people of Israel are becoming really, really big, but they're in Egypt and they're under the oppression of the Egyptian rulers. God liberates them. That's called the Exodus. They move into the promised land. They become a kingdom, a nation, the nation of Israel. This kingdom divides between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because of sin. And then these two kingdoms, they sin and they, they commit adultery. They commit idolatry. They commit all these acts of wickedness. And God judges them at different times. The northern kingdom is taken away by a, a world power by the name of Assyria. And then the southern kingdom is taken away by the Babylonians. 
But God made a promise to them that he would bring them out of their captivity, bring them back into their land and do a new work. This is often called the new exodus. So they were liberated from Egypt, but now we're seeing a time when God would liberate them from Babylon. And that's where we're at right now in these two prophets. And God is going to describe his activity in relation to his holiness. Okay, so let me show you the first one, because this is God's declaration of here's what I'm going to do to Babylon, the ones who have hurt my people. This is what I'm going to do. And God is going to speak about his vengeance on those people and how that is connected to his holiness. Again, because his holiness is not static, it's dynamic. Let me show you this, Isaiah chapter 47. And again, the prophets are going to use very... um, exaggerated and colorful language to describe what God is going to do. So prepare your minds for that as we read. Verse 1, the prophet says this, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind the flour Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. God's holiness is on the move in taking vengeance against the wicked. This is heavy. This is what Mary means when she said, my God is mighty and my God is holy. He is morally pure and he has an insatiable desire to see righteousness reign in every part of the universe. He is not a God far away, unable to fix. He is a dynamic God who is powerful and strong and will right every wrong. Now there's a wonderful and positive side to the dynamic movement of God's holiness towards humanity. Let me show you that in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. One of my favorite passages in the Bible and it's funny because Ezekiel was actually the first book I read when I became a follower of Jesus. And if I have any recommendation for you, it's don't do that. I was so confused. I was like, what is going on in this book? It's a great book. Probably not the first one you should read. But right here in the center here, this is beautiful. Because God is not only going to talk about a physical deliverance of bringing Israel out of Babylonian captivity. He's going to talk about this new dynamic work that is the new covenant. That he's not only going to bring his people back, he's going to restore them and do a work so deeply in them that he's going to transform who they are. He's going to give them a new heart. And this promise is going to go out not just to Israel, but to all peoples. This is a hint to what God is doing in the New Testament and in the book of Acts. We can't cover all of that, but this is the new covenant promise that God is giving. And watch how his holiness is behind this movement. This is exactly what Mary is thinking of, she's thinking of this type of God who morally transforms people as his holiness goes towards them. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, start with verse 22. And just listen for the holiness of God in the prophet's speech here. 
It says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And, you, and I will vindicate, there it is again. We've seen God vindicate. He's vindicating again. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will forgive your sins and I will root out the cause of your wickedness, this evil heart. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a heart of flesh. Now let's just stop here for a moment. If the only two concepts we took from Mary... Or that God is mighty, meaning he is powerful. No one can overcome him. No one can be compared to him. He has the power and the ability to do what he wishes. If we took that idea of God's might, and then we took the idea of God's holiness, meaning he is morally pure, and he is in pursuit of bringing justice to every corner of the universe. If we only take those two concepts, we should be afraid of that being. Any being that is sinful should be terrified of that. The God who is all-powerful, you can't hide from him. Where are you going to run that his hand can't reach you? Nowhere. There's no shield that could block you from his strength. If this being is all-powerful, what can you do to subdue him? Nothing. You can't run fast enough. You can't run far enough. There's no armor thick enough. To thwart his attacks. And if he is holy. And that holiness is dynamic. It's not just his character. But it's his commitment. To shape the course of human history. Toward a righteous end. Then anyone with sin. Should be terrified. So why isn't she? Why does she praise. That being. Because that being sounds like. A moral, righteous, all-powerful judge with an unlimited jurisdiction. Why would we not cower before him? Because she sees him as merciful. See, when a power is out of our control, we fear it. We fear it. But when that power is for our good, we're not afraid of it. Let me show you how she balances the idea of God's might and God's holiness with the idea of God's mercy. Let me show you this. Luke chapter 1. So go back. Again, finger-licking good sermon. If you beat me, well, don't get proud. You're in church. Come on. That's like a sin. <laughs> Luke chapter 1. Let me show you. Look at verse 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my what? Savior. What does that mean? 
That means Mary is confessing, I need saving. And you are my savior. Mary is admitting, I have sin. I am guilty. I have broken God's law. I have broken God's rules. I am a sinner. And the one who will save me is the mighty holy one. He will come, and on my behalf, he will advocate for me. He will use his power for my good. He will save me. He's the hero of my story. Then she extends this out. Look down again. Verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. See, this is what I think we often do when we want to make God more approachable. Is we are tempted to diminish either his power or his holiness. We feel like the only way we can make more God more manageable, more comfortable, like more bite-sized, if you will, is that we got we to gotta subtract from one of those. Either he's not all-powerful. Okay, God can't overcome me. Right? Okay, there are certain things I can hide from God, I can keep from God. God's just, he's too busy to deal with my disobedience. Right? And there are things I can keep from him. Places I can go that he won't know. We diminish his power. Because we feel like that makes him more approachable. Like you want to worship a God of that kind of impotence. Right? Or, or we'll diminish his holiness. Ah, God, you're, it's not a big deal. You know, you, you kind of brush off those little sins. You, those, those, those are shruggers to you. Ah, Paul just, he needs to figure things out, you know. Exploring phase. But Mary didn't do that. Mary didn't diminish the power of God or the holiness of God. She didn't downplay his might. She didn't downplay his character and his commitment to bring about righteousness. She didn't move him away, far away. She didn't do that. Mary's view of God was approachable, not because she subtracted those two things, because she added something else. And that was the mercy of God. It reminds me of one of the most <laughs> confusing passages of scripture I remember reading as a young follower of Jesus. In Exodus 20, God is going to meet with his people. So he delivers them from Egyptian slavery, and he wants to be their God. And the language over and over in the Old Testament, you'll see it if you start reading through the Old Testament, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Very intimate language. God's like, I'm going to relate with you and I want to be with you and I'm going to dwell in your presence. So God decides, I'm going to show up. So God shows up on Mount Sinai and he shows up in thunder and lightning and smoke. And the people of Israel panic. They're like, ah, right? Like I would do to a nutria, so they do to the God of Sinai. They want to run. They're done. And then Moses says this really interesting phrase to the people of God who are panicking at the display of God's power. Look at this, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. God says this through Moses. After they panic, Moses said this. Moses said this to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Okay, so if you're an English teacher in this room and you didn't like my big idea, take it up with Moses. Ha <laughs> ha. No, I'm just kidding. You can tell there's some, like, there's some like childhood trauma. I got a bad grade from an English teacher. I struggled in school, okay? If you're a teacher, good for you. You're doing great things. 
please keep giving to the church and supporting us. Okay. <laughs> You're like, I'm not giving this Sunday, Paul. I'm going to get you. <laughs> Good for you, teachers. We love you. All right. But look at this. Isn't this strange? It's kind of odd, isn't it? Don't fear. God came here. Why? To make you afraid. Moses, are you okay? What are you saying? Well, here's what God is saying. God said, don't run away from me. Don't run away from me. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't distance yourself from me. That's not what I want. What does God want? I want you to be afraid so you'll follow me, not run away from me. That you may not sin. That our relationship would be good. You see the difference there? I want you to fear me, but not be afraid of me. I want you to revere my power and my holiness, but also that you would see my mercy. This reminds me of the fear I had of my father. I knew my father's power. I knew his might. I know you're looking at me, you're like, how big was your dad? He was actually a big guy. I know you're like, what happened? I don't know, I might be adopted, but I'm just pushing off the trauma of that kind of experience. My dad was a mighty man. He was, he was a brawler, and that's a whole other kind of story to talk about. But he was a mighty man. He was a strong man. And he had a standard for my behavior when I would come and visit him. And I knew that standard, and I knew his power. And if I only thought of those two things, and I did something wrong when I was visiting my dad, if I only thought of those two things, what would be my response when I did something wrong? Run. Right? Deuces, I'm out. Like, you're stronger. Guess what? I'm faster. Right? That's like the only advantage I had. But when I thought of my dad's power and I thought of his standards, and I also remembered that he loved me and that I loved him and that he would be merciful, then when I did something wrong, what would I do? I'd come to him. (laughs) I'd come to him. I remember, in fact, I have a very vivid memory of this, of walking up the back stairs. And I did something wrong. And I knew that I did something wrong. I feel like I was like rehearsing in my head what my dad said to me. And I did exactly the opposite of what my dad told me to do. And I could have hit it. I could have run away from him. But then I was facing, I think, a more severe consequence. I was betraying that relationship. And I was damaging it if I didn't bring it to him. Now, I knew I would get a consequence because I knew his standard and I knew his power. I knew there'd be a consequence. But I also knew that he loved me and that I loved him and that he would be merciful. And I remember coming to him and said, Dad, I messed it up. I'm sorry. And I got a consequence. But that was so much smaller than the consequence of damaging our relationship because I was hiding sin from him. God is not more approachable if we diminish his power. God is not more approachable if we diminish his holiness. We cannot subtract those things. We need to add to those things. We fear God because of his power. We fear God because of his holiness. But we're not afraid of God because of his mercy. 
In fact, when we downplay the power of God, when we downplay the holiness of God, we are downplaying the mercy of God. Because it is the power of God and the holiness of God that magnifies his mercy. It was the power of God and the holiness of God that collided in the fury of God's wrath upon the Son, Jesus Christ. And when we diminish his power and we diminish his holiness, we diminish the cross. We diminish the offense of sin and we diminish the substitute of the Son. Because the Son of God who willfully bore the fury, the righteous fury of God himself. And none of us will ever know truly the depth of that just fury upon our souls. But it is the Son of God who sustained all of that. And to diminish God's power and diminish his holiness is to diminish the mercy of the cross. When we elevate those properly, then we truly see just how delightfully beautiful the mercy of God is. And the God who would take wrath for us, that's the God you run to, not the God you run away from. So here's my question to you. Do you fear God? Do you fear him? Or do you downplay his power? Do you live as though, "Ah, I could hide this from God. Nobody will ever know. The thoughts I keep from my spouse in here, I can keep those from God too. God can't reach me. He's too busy to deal with my disobedience. Do you live as though God were not powerful? That you could escape him? Or maybe do you you diminish the holiness of God? Do you adjust the moral standards that are in this book? Do you say to yourself, well, you know what, God, that one, that's a little archaic. You need to catch up. That's not the code of conduct now. Do you adjust the standard of God, therefore diminish his holiness? Do you feel like God's indifferent to your sin, to your disobedience? Here's a good diagnostic kind of question, just one question that I think can help you See if you fear God like Mary did. Simple question. That's this. What do you do when you sin? What do you do when you sin? Do you hide? If you hide, you don't understand the power of God. There is no hiding. There's no running. There's no fleeing. Do you justify your sin? It's okay, it's fine, not a big deal, God will brush it off. Then you don't understand the holiness of God. Do you wallow in shame? Then you've missed the mercy of God. But if you confess, if you confess, then you understand his might, his holiness, and his mercy. Then you have a healthy fear of God. Then you have a fear like Mary had a fear. The Christian faith starts with confession and it continues to grow with confession.
My challenge to you this week, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is when you sin this week, and notice how I phrase that, when you sin, not if you sin. Okay? I know you, church. I know you. And I know me. <laughs> when you sin this week, here's my challenge. Confess it. Confess it to somebody else. Not because they're God, but because the Bible encourages us to confess our sins to other brothers and sisters in Christ. We see that in James chapter 5. When you sin, confess that to a brother and sister in Christ. And see the liberty that that brings in your life. Now maybe you're not yet following Jesus. But you realize today, as we've walked through these scriptures, or maybe you've been coming for several weeks or months or even years, and you've never crossed that line to say, today's the day I'm becoming a Christian. And the Christian faith, crossing that line, starts with confession. You confess your need for God, just like Mary did. I need a Savior. You confess your need. You've, you've, you've broken God's rules and God's law, just like all of us have. And that means you need God's forgiveness. And you confess that Jesus Christ is the only one who provided that forgiveness in his death and resurrection. And you confess him as the Lord of your life. If you want to make that decision today, you can do that. You can do that. I'm going to pray here in a moment. Just between you and God, you can say that confession to God. And if you mean it from your heart, it's not just words out of your mouth. God will forgive you of your sins. And you will know him as Heavenly Father. And you will have the hope of eternal life with him. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to help you out with some words. And again, my words aren't magical, but they are meaningful if they come from your heart. So if you want to step across that line of faith today, just join me when I pray here in a moment. Church family, let's all pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Christ, I thank you. I thank you. That you submitted to the fury of the Father. To the just wrath. For my sin, you bore that on the cross. And I don't want to ever downplay the severity of my sin. I don't want to downplay God's hatred for my sin. His just hatred of my sin. I don't want to downplay that. I want to see that truly was a grievous thing, all the treasonous actions of my heart, my mind. But how overwhelming your mercy and your grace, that you satisfied your holy hunger for righteousness, you satisfied on the cross, that your justice fell with mercy on somebody else besides me. Wow. Father, I pray you be with us as we treat our sin seriously, but we don't let it shame us. We confess it this week to a friend or maybe even a family member. And we can live in the freedom that that confession will bring. And Father, for those in this room who want to make that decision to step across that line of faith and say, today's the day I'm committing my life to Jesus. Today's the day I want to be called a Christian for the first time. Man, if that's you in the room, you can say these words that I'm about to say. It's in the silence of your own heart, just between you and God. You can say something like this. You can say, I admit. <laughs> I admit that I've sinned. I admit that I've fallen short. I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of my sins. And today I confess him as the Lord of my life. 
It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.